From Relay FM, this is The Pen Addict, episode 600. This episode is brought to you by Pen Chalet, February 9th, 2012. So just shy of 12 years ago, this is episode one of The Pen Addict, where I, Mike Hurley, introduced the podcast world to the one and only Brad Dowdy. Hi, Brad. And everyone's lives have gone downhill since. No, and the maybe their bank accounts. The balance <laughs> in the podcast universe shifted forever. How does it feel to be an OG podcasters? Because I feel like we're OG, even though like yeah. podcasts were like really going. Like when we started, like you were already podcasting. We've been doing this for a dozen years. Yeah, and I've been and, listening to this stuff for a long time. You know, so like it mm-hmm. was. You know, it had been around. It had been around for a long time. I think like mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. like 2007 or something. Yeah, around seven or like the yeah. beginning. But mm-hmm. at this point, though, like it makes me feel OG because there really isn't. I don't. I don't think there are like that many people still going who were going before us. You know. Yeah, uh, like yeah. they exist, but not to the same level. And so to have done, uh, to have done a podcast for 12 years, has that feeling of oh yeah, like. We're here from day one, you know. This is like yeah, stuff. And I'm just immensely proud of it because yeah. I feel like like our episode one still holds up. Like we've been very consistent. Well, and, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend you know. listening to it because it would sound <laughs> terrible. But yeah, I'm sure the I content did. was was good. Yeah, I did. I did that. That was my homework for episode four hundred, which honestly just seems like yesterday. I can't believe we're already gone from like four hundred to six hundred. That that gap seems like wild to me. That seems like really, really like it was yesterday. So, hmm. yeah, it's been good. So we're gonna kind of do like a big picture talk today. Yeah, I think. Um, you know, we we'll just talk about a uh, little reminiscing, a little bit of forward thinking, a little bit of backward thinking little bit of big idea type of stuff i took some questions uh from the pen addict slackers on you know what they wanted to get our uh opinions on for episode 600 so we're gonna we're gonna have all of that here uh in this episode upcoming momentarily but i did want to uh you know ping you with a couple of questions here and the very uh, very interesting one to me um, because I can already see we're thinking along the same lines. So my question to both of us, really, if the podcast were a pen, what pen would it be? So I, I, maybe you can help me think of the pen, right? Because mm-hmm. what, what so I'm I, thinking of is like the yeah. Porsche 911, right? Okay. So I have the pen and I think you described the pen okay. that I'm talking about. So you you go first and tell me what you were thinking about, like the 911, which is right. a classic design, right? It's a classic. It doesn't change very much. You know it when you see it. Because it was set in the beginning well. And yeah, you know it when you see it. Like lots of <laughs> lots of other cars have tried to imitate it, but none will <laughs> beat it. Don't you forget <laughs> it. You pen podcasters, we're number one around here. <laughs> Uh, long-lasting, <laughs> iconic design that like, doesn't change. It just adapts mm. slightly. They, they don't do like big out-of-left-field changes. That's kind of how I think about the show. The show, the format of the show has not really changed um, mm. in the last 12 years. We've made mm. slight adaptions here and there. We've gone in some directions, come back. But the, the overall show is still the same as it always has been. And so it makes me think of like the Porsche 911. So what pen does that remind you of? The Pilot Vanishing Point. You know, I was thinking Vanishing Point too. Mm-hmm. 
So if the podcast is a pin, we're the pilot vanishing point for all the reasons that you say, right? It's it's a classic. It's a it's an old pin, right? Started like in the late 60s. The general concept has been the same through the entirety of its, you know, 50, 60, 70 year run at this point. The it 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 can't be beaten, right? Mm-hmm. No one's been able to duplicate and have such a good quality as it is. And I'm not saying that necessarily about our podcast, you know, the, the get off our lawn stuff. We, we joke about that stuff. We're, we're very, uh, we would like you to come on our lawn and we would like to visit your lawns as well. But, <laughs> oh, <first>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like I think it's the pilot vanishing point. It just works. Yeah. It's weird, right? It's weird. It's cool. It's technically good and solid. It's quality. Um, you know it when you see it. And like I just feel like that's kind of like the perfect. It's also like separate from that. It was like one of my first big pin purchases and something like we were super interested mm-hmm. in back in the day. It was day, for both of us. Like it was one of yeah. the first. Like it was like a pen that kind of when we both found out about it, it was like, oh, this is like really mm-hmm. cool. This feels like a dream product, right? Like a retractable fountain pen that just seems so convenient. Right. Right. And like to this day, it's still an important pin yeah. and it's going to keep on going and it's going to uh, celebrate its uh, its annual special editions and we're going to celebrate our our milestone episodes. So, yeah, I think that I think the show is the pilot vanishing point. I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. So you reached out to listeners and you asked them for some questions. And so obviously mm-hmm. we have questions. That's going to be today's episode is it's yeah. not really an RSTPA as such. Right. It, it, these tend to be bigger things, stuff about kind of looking at the show, looking at us, and also kind of our bigger feelings about the stationary landscape. The first question comes from Michael, who says, I'm going to start serious, Michael says. Mm-hmm. With so many content creators, especially YouTubers, retiring from their major projects and moving on to new creative endeavors or none at all, have you given any thought about how long you will continue to do The Pen Addict? I'm assuming... So my thinking is Mike was asking this question directly to you. I'm going to take yes. it for me, like just in general and in referencing the pen addict, we mean all of it, not just the podcast yes. or whatever, but like, so that's everything you do, everything I do. Mm-hmm. If you do move on, would you just shut the whole thing down or perhaps hand it over to a new generation to carry the torch? Obviously, I do not want you to end it or step away, but it's a question I have about this new creator economy and how it moves forward as the first generation of creators perhaps contemplate either actually retiring or just stepping away for new horizons. Great question, right? Like this is what the episode like I think is about and thinking about some of these things. So you and I have probably seen a lot of, I've seen a lot in the YouTube space where a lot of the creators that have been doing it longer than us or even shorter than us that like grew really big are stepping back right like i think i I don't want to speak for you but have you noticed that Mm -hmm. here recently Mm -hmm. like you see especially from on the youtube side of things and you know creators come and go and i think given the length of time we've been doing this we probably in the beginning didn't think we'd be still doing this. I don't know. Maybe we did. Maybe we no, didn't. I don't, I don't, I don't think you ever really like any creative project mm-hmm. set it up with the idea that you would do it for 12 years. Like not necessarily like mm-hmm. you think you would stop or whatever. Like I didn't have, and I don't have still like of any of my projects, like, Oh, how long am I going to do them for? Like I'm going to do yeah. them for as long as I do them. Um, 
but like to have begun and be like, oh, we'll do this for twelve years. That doesn't, you know, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't think about that. It's a weird. Yeah, thing and to nor think did, about. nor did I ever think about it being my job, right? Which well, I, I think I is, did. I mean, you yours was you, different, right? Because you wanted a podcast you, network. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. For yeah. you as well, like I always knew you could do you this did. as your you profession, did. and I tried to push you to do it for a really long time. Yes, yes. So Mike is very important in my like, and, and I'm I'm not joking when I say this. Mike is very important in my life and my career. In having someone in my corner to you know show me the light and and talk me up. So I do appreciate that. We all need you. it. Yep, yep. So this I think guides my answer to Michael's question is that I don't really have like the type of burnout that someone who maybe goes into content creation from the jump saying I'm going to be a content creator and these are the these are the 500 things I need to do to like execute on this plan perfectly and beat the algorithms and make my make my space and make a career out of it right so I've been able and and let me just be clear I'm very fortunate to be able to come at it from a little bit of a different angle and keep my sanity over these years, even though we have moments of insanity very frequently. Um, I always want to come back and do this. So to directly answer the question, how long do we think, you know, I'll speak for myself. How long do I think I'm going to do this? I think I told Mike the other day, like this year or maybe late, late last year is like, I've never considered what the end of the show would look like. But a few years ago, somewhere probably after episode 500, I was like, I want to go to episode 1,000 in 10 more years, right? That would be 1,000 podcast episodes and 20 years of the podcast. I was like, that was what I was thinking of. Like, but like, you know, things happen, whatever. Like, I don't, I don't, like, I don't have that written on a post-it stuck to my, stuck to my uh, monitor here going, you know, yes, 1,000 episodes. That's the goal, right? But like, I feel good about that. I feel happy with what I do. Yeah. Um, I'm, we're going to touch on this more. Like, I'm still enamored by the whole stationary space and everything that comes along with that and being able to talk about that. So um, the second part of the question, if I were to step away one day, what does the future look like? That one, I have no clue on i don't know how i would end it what it would what would happen i would like and maybe this is a focus over the next several years i would like to leave the space in the cliche way better than i found it but like i feel pretty good about like i think we do a pretty good job of that now so i think my focus over the past few years and going forward has been more on the education side, the community building side, um, the openness and welcoming side of things, as opposed to just like um, the numbers, right? The pure content creation aspects of it. So if I can leave it in a space where people are thankful that this thing happened and it served as a guidepost for things to happen in the future, that would kind of be all I need. But how that like technically ends, I don't know, right? Yeah, so I'm about to turn 36, mm-hmm. and I've been podcasting for 14 years. Mm-hmm. So it's a huge portion of my life, 
and I have been podcasting professionally for 10 years. Like, it's been my actual job for 10 years. It is also funny to me that this show is 12 years old, <laughs> and Relay will turn 10 years old. And it, so right. it feels kind of... It doesn't feel like it's possible that the show was only, like, two and a half years old when it when we started Relay, because it felt like it would mm-hmm. be going forever before then, too, which is just, like... We did a lot, like, in the, yeah. in the before Relay years. We, we did, still. like, three different networks kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it was be- it was because well, it was like two. We, we had two, yeah, disposals yeah. and we joined five by five, and then then it was yeah, two yeah, relay. Yeah. And I think that 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 was exemplified in the sense of me trying really hard to like make it my job. It was like I was just yes. taking whatever opportunities I could to get me closer and closer. Um, and so like having done this, this is the longest I've ever done anything. Right, podcasting. My show with you is the longest professional relationship I have had. Um, and it will probably be the longest I ever have. Like, I just don't imagine why that wouldn't be the case. Um, so, like, I I am, like, aware of how long I've been doing this, which is why something, which is why Cortex Brand exists for me, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to have a new thing to work on that is, like, interesting and successful that isn't just starting more podcasts, right? It's what I've done over time, just start new shows. Because I like new challenges, um, I like to learn how to deal with new problems. And so Cortex Brand really uh, is kind of protecting my ability to be able to podcast into the, the like long term, right? Because it, mm-hmm. it's, well, one, it's diversifying it, me and, and, and also just like providing me with something new to work on. Exactly. Like it's it's multifaceted. Like it's not financially, it's also mentally, yeah. right? Which is really important allows, to me. Like yes. not everybody needs that, but but I do. Right. Um, and right. the idea, like, would I pass it on? Right. That I don't. I don't know about that. Like, mm-hmm. I see the benefit to it, but I'm also not sure how comfortable I feel about it. Right. Like, to to have somebody else step in for me on my shows, and like now that that person shows, it just feels strange because like I built them. Right. Um, I'm I am more keen and have been more keen in the past and have done lots of things in trying to to help bring new people in and like support as much as I can and stuff. But the idea of like just saying, Here you go, person, take this show like that that feels odd. Um I, but it could be on a case by case basis, right? Like that that I might want to do it. But I can't imagine just being like, All right, I'm retiring from relay now and uh, Bobby is gonna <laughs> host all of my shows now like that just feels weird <laughs> yeah yeah so um that's that was our long way of saying there's there's no end in sight for us y'all no. are stuck with us for a while <laughs> no. I, I can't honestly like i don't i could imagine uh lots of things changing you know sure, sure, like sure, sure. there will be so many things that would change before this show would end and like and it could be something like we can't do weekly anymore right uh, mm-hmm. We'd have to go to fortnightly or whatever, right? Because like something sure. in our lives has changed where we need to reduce mm-hmm. the time. Like this, this stuff happens, but there are so many things that would change before I would stop doing this. Right, so. right. And the 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 one thing we didn't mention, and and I didn't mention purposefully, is I'm much older than you. So my uh my 1,000 episode 20 year plan puts me at 60 years old, which is that doesn't like, seem you like know. a problem. <laughs> it doesn't to me, mm. but like if I if I think about it too hard, I was like, wow, I'm gonna that be talking funny. about like pastel friction gel pens when I'm 60. Then I'm like, 
yeah, yes, I am. <laughs> so, like, no, I mean, I'll I'll be, I'll be like, oh, man, am I going to be talking about yeah. Joe Pence when I'm 46? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was doing it when I was 26, so. <laughs> yep, yep. There, like, there's, like, we'll, we'll touch on this more throughout this episode because there's some questions relating to it, but, like, I could not be more thrilled about being in the stationary industry right now. So, uh, all right, let's keep going. Can you ask me this? Can you ask this question? Because I have a, oh, I have an answer that yeah. just hit me and it made me quite emotional. Okay, so let's alternate. All right, yeah. so that's, that's a good I'll idea, do this yeah. one. Well, so, no, um, let's not do that because sometimes a lot of these questions, Brad, they'd ask it and I'd be like, oh, I don't know, what's Brad? Thing? You know, like when we get <laughs> okay. like the industry stuff, but just this okay. one, just ask this. All one. right, this one. So uh, Tina Tree asks, what advice would the six hundred episode versions of you give the first episode version of you starting on this incredible journey dream bigger okay i yeah that's interesting right because i i get that i did all i did it all right so look hey mm-hmm. look if you don't want to hear a couple of guys congratulate themselves for the next 45 minutes you should probably <laughs> stop now <laughs> yeah but i had so many things i wanted to achieve in my mm-hmm. career 12 years ago and I've done all of them like I don't think there's anything left now mm-hmm. and so there is like a weird thing where I had to come to terms with this a couple of years ago because it was like a weird feeling that I had which was like and and if I've heard a lot of creators talk about this like people when they they reach the success that they dreamed of of like now what and right. so you know again why am I looking to other things? Like this is part of why, right? Like setting up new goals, new dreams for myself, what I would want to achieve in my life. Cause I've, I've done it, you know, like I've done it in my overall podcasting career. You know, I had dreams for this show. I had dreams for my other shows. I had dreams for what it would mean to be a professional podcaster. And I've done, them. I've done them. Um, I mean, we're achieving another one this year, but it's like a, it's a newer dream, right? Which is like mm-hmm. hosting a, a big theater show in London. But that's been something I wanted to, I've only wanted to do the last couple of years. And that is that idea of dreaming bigger because it seems like such a hard thing to achieve. But the things that I really dreamt of doing, I have done them. And mm-hmm. it's an incredible thing. And so like when I say that, it's more just that is me being able to tell me of 12 years ago, you're going to get everything you wanted. And so you might as well think more i like that i like that a lot um and that's good like i think the the cortex brand kind of ties into that too is like that's kind of like that wasn't a dream ever in the beginning right probably and to have like that kind of work to focus on too right as all right that's a piece of like maybe the next puzzle of what's going to happen later so i took this question a little bit differently i mean it's both valid answers but i but because this is something i think about a lot and this is a very personal thing for me and like my my personal journeys that i've gone through just you know like mentally physically things like that is that the drama is never worth it if you're a content creator i don't believe in the drama clickbait cycle that a lot of not in the stationary world particularly but just in the general world um really short attention span theater drama clickbaity type of stuff and not that we ever did that but there were definitely moments that i regretted 
during the show of trying to impose my status or impose my will as a bastion of righteousness. And there have been fights say, you re- fought that maybe in mm-hmm. hindsight you shouldn't have bothered fighting. Right. right. Might be a, like, might be a simple way to say it. I don't know. Yeah. Like I'm okay discussing like the failures of products and, you know, warning people like, hey, like, you know, you may not want to spend your money in this way and and things like that. But, you know, like making things personal or doing things like that, like that's it's never worth it in the end. Mm-hmm. And that's something I, I've grown out of over the years and worked on over the years and try to have to catch myself sometimes over the years. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's just a very, very, it's like a, a, it's, it affects me very negatively for very negative benefit, like little to no benefit whatsoever. Yeah. So, um, that would be an advice I give myself. Um, even though like, it's not something that comes up much, but when it does, it takes an outsized toll on me. Right. So that's just a, a looking back at myself personally, um, and how I like to operate and the things I believe in. So, yeah, that's uh, that's something I, I still think about to this day. Zoe asks, what were the most game-changing things over the last 600 episodes, products, trends, industry moves? What has really shaken up the stationary landscape enough that it still sticks out? Kickstarter. This is a tough question. Kickstarter. I literally wrote down one thing and yeah. I wrote down Kickstarter. That's that's what jumps to my mind. It's mm-hmm. it's enabled businesses to exist, let alone entire like sections of the uh, the community, right? Like the products right. and I mean we use we have used it to great success to enable things mm-hmm. for the show, um, but you know you've used it to great success to launch businesses and. Mm-hmm. When we started, it was it was early. It was like pen type B. It was like it. Was it pen type yeah. C or B? Pen type A. 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 My word. Of course, you it know, started. A. <laughs> I was hoping you'd get there in a minute. <laughs> well, you know, I, the thing is, I, I I don't always necessarily assume that they're naming things in a way that makes sense. So, I don't know. Um, a hundred percent agree. It, it, it's Kickstarter. Once I realized the answer was Kickstarter, I I was trying to think of something else that would be. Uh, the most game changing thing, like in the span of our run as a podcast. And that just allowed for so much. I think it's especially important for our industry being a smaller niche industry, right? Stationary as a whole, that you need to find your people that have these special interests. And Kickstarter is a platform that allowed for that, right? As opposed to. You know, the bigger projects that were famous back in our early days of Kickstarter, like the Pebble Watch or that stupid cooler that never shipped. And like those are general products. Like these are the coolest. These cooler. are more, more. What was that cooler called? Do you the remember? Coolest cooler. Coolest cooler. Yeah. Did that ever ship? I don't know. That uh, no, shipped. it didn't. <laughs> um, but yeah, ours industry our our hobby our business of stationary really kind of thrives on that platform right uh for good good and bad right like once it once it starts once anything starts being successful you start getting some you know more interesting uh participants but um i think that is definitely kind of a a through line through all of our episodes that um, we continue to talk about to this day, just recently, last episode, right? I got a lot of feedback on on last episode, which we'll cover in a future episode. I have um, something just about wild the current 
for current you. state of Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah, right. So me. I've gone to I went to Kickstarter's uh, Wikipedia page because mm-hmm. I wanted to see like when did they start, and, and they mm-hmm. started in uh, two thousand and nine. So it really hadn't been around for very long. Um, okay, but listen to this. Uh, on February 9th, 2012, Kickstarter hit a number of milestones. A dock made for the iPhone became the first Kickstarter project to exceed a million dollars. A few hours later, an adventure game from developers Double Fine did the same. Um, this was also the first time uh, Kickstarter raised over a million dollars of pledges in a single day. So there, but that then that was also today the show began. Our show began. So ah, we are inextricably funny. linked to Kickstarter. Because so, the <laughs> thing is, even if you. Like, you know, you said it's obviously been a lot of change in the industry, but I think that the proliferation of smaller businesses that are able to come to the fore because of platforms like Kickstarter has also mm-hmm. pushed the larger companies to diversifying their lineups because mm-hmm. they're aware of like preference changes and um, pressure in the industry coming from below them. Right, right. Like when when someone can do something like, fast and good and have the following that they gain and the support that they gain from a Kickstarter makes the larger, more established companies kind of go, huh, yeah. what's going on over there? <laughs> exactly. How do you do, fellow kids? Uh, Caroline asks, uh, one time I tried starting the show of episode one and it was all about gel pens. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when did fountain pens cross that threshold and was it Brad first or Mike first? So the threshold came pretty early. I, yeah. I didn't go back and grab the first episode. It was, the, and, but from memory, it's either episode seven or episode ten. I can find um, that out for that, you. that we were really, really quick. I mean, I'm sure we mentioned them before then. Yeah. But I, I, I had already gone through the I hate fountain pens phase into I'm buying fountain pens no later than episode ten. Like it was pretty quick. Um, and then we were off to episode the races ten. From that you point. went to the Atlanta Pen Show, which is kind yeah. of incredible, and that. The first link is Pilot Vanishing Point. So exactly, exactly. So yeah, us. and then yeah, episode so sure fourteen is me talking about my Pilot Vanishing Point. <laughs> That's the good stuff, man. I, I, so, I yeah. think though, at the beginning, I had more of a uh, a love or an interest in fountain pens than you did. Correct. You actually I, had fountain pens, and yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I I had had more of a. I tried more of them as I was growing up. And so mm-hmm. it was something that I was a little bit more interested in than you were, but obviously it didn't take very long for us <laughs> to start. And then, you know, obviously you shot past me and then I think I caught up and then mm-hmm. you, you mm-hmm. took another step. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. I th- that's exactly how it flowed. No, you're exactly right. Um, so yeah, like it's, uh, and I still like, if y'all have listened to any of the current episodes, y'all know I love my 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 standard pens, my ballpoints and gel pens and pencils. And every now and then I'll mix up a, a non-fountain pen episode just because I love that stuff. But I always mix in different products in between there because I there's no less than like a 50%, 50-50 usage rate between fountain pens and standard pens. Like I use, I use a ton of standard pens. So yeah. I always talk about them. It's just um, what we discovered years ago it's just the general marketplace moves faster in in the fountain pens yeah. um, than like your standard gel pen offerings. So, yep. Um, so we ended up talking about them a little bit more. Damien writes in to say there was a massive boom in the stationary hobby with COVID. 
Uh, what are your thoughts on where we are in regards to that boom? Have we seen people pull back from the hobby now that things have gone back to normal for a while? Has the hobby retained a lot of newcomers? Is the hobby growing in a sustainable way or are we in a mini boom and bust cycle? You have any thoughts on this first or you want me to go? I, yeah, I mean... Because I probably figure you have some thoughts even generally just from more of a podcasting feel. Um, well, actually, I was going to talk about keyboards. So, I okay. mean, yeah. I, I genuinely, I didn't... I did not realize a boom in the stationary world during COVID. Like that didn't mm-hmm. that didn't really seem to change for me. Um, mm-hmm. But in pug in keyboards, that did that was the case, right? Like I got into to mechanical keyboards as did many people, and there was a huge boom in interest and aftermarket, and like then companies started ballooning in size and hiring loads of people. And like these are the you know. This is how it's going to go. And now so many keyboard companies like vendors, designers, creators are going out of business now and also taking customers' products along with them. Like, right. Unfortunately, because of the way that keyboards works, a lot of long lead time pre-orders. And there are, uh, I have been impacted in this. Everybody I know that's into this has. There are companies that had my money and have now disappeared mm. and I've got nothing for it. Um, and this is because like these companies grew and thought things would always be this way and then it turned out not to be that way and now they've gone out of business so i so basically this is to say like lots of industries have gone through this so it doesn't surprise me that this would have happened in stationary i just didn't really feel like i noticed it in a in an intense way so we definitely had a little bit of a boom from a retail perspective during that time, right? Because we're all sitting at home on our computers yep, people buying and stuff. trying to get dopamine hits. From. And a lot of people, not everyone, <laughs> but a lot of people, uh, I would say actually a lot of people had uh, more disposable income. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because they Cause weren't like using it on other stuff. And yeah. so they just used it on things. Yeah, but what I'm not seeing is I think we've come out of it and not that anything, not that this is over or anything, but just that obviously we're just talking about like the big picture shutdown time frame. Um, is that we've come out of this in a pretty positive fashion. Like I think it was generally healthy growth um, between from retailers. They're also allowed more people to get into the business during that time, right? Because people are finding other things to do, other ways to occupy themselves and thinking about, hey, I can do this and taking the time to learn and get into the business. So I think we've come out of it pretty healthy in that we have more people in the industry. Um, I'm seeing a proliferation Mm -hmm. of small makers, uh, whether that's pens, inks, any kind of supplies accessories um you know maintenance tools any of that type of stuff so are we going to hit a peak have we had hit the peak are we past peak i that's i'm not sure yet it still feels okay it feels a little crowded if i'm being honest but i don't know that in a bad way Right, I I don't have a strong feeling that we're on the downside of anything Mm -hmm. at all. Right, we still have new listeners. We still have new people emailing me. People discovering things all the time. You know, I've told myself years ago that I can't forget that there's someone listening to the podcast for the first time today. 
right? Um, they'll probably, if this is their first episode, they may never listen to us again, but like, it's going to happen, right? There's people reading my blog for the first time. There's people stumbling on some random gel ink pen review because they had a question about something and searched it and landed on my blog and then emailed me for a question. So we still have this curiosity and we still have, um, the support from, like retail and creative sides of things yep. that seems healthy. Like as someone, like I'll admit, like I'm not in, in the trenches looking at the back end of, you know, a retail storefront and how the graphs are charting, but it seems pretty positive, positive from all the anecdotal commentary and evidence that I have. So we'll see. Like, I still think we have like another year or two, like may do things shake out maybe differently am i having a different conversation a year or two from now i don't know i don't i i don't know it feels pretty good right now is the best i can say which maybe is not like a great answer but i think we're retaining newcomers i think people are still discovering things and sustainability i think we're pretty good like it it feels good yeah and i feel like the you know if we're talking about like again like podcasting or whatever i've seen things go up and down so many times and it's just a case of being around for long enough and assuming that like things expand and contract like listen mm-hmm. numbers go up and they go down and yep. I try not to freak out about it too much sometimes it can be concerning <laughs> but some, most of the time it's fine like I just know that if things look like they're on a downturn for a bit it will t- it will tick back up again you've just got to be prepared mm-hmm. for it yeah just gonna carry on keep, keep on keeping on Yep, I'll let Mike think about that. I yep. probably it's probably been two years since I asked him what our download count is. You don't need least. to know. I, I just yeah, we just keep going, right? Just keep going. Mm-hmm. All right. Benjamin says, I think my collection is known for custom pens and pens by small makers. With more small makers and bespoke makers than ever before, what advice would you give to people wanting to stand out in a crowded market? I'm I'm shaking my head over here because it's really tough. Like yeah. I just said, like I feel we're in 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 this good sustainable phase, but like it, it's very crowded, right? Mm-hmm. Like Benjamin's a hundred percent right. I've no, like I just said, I've never seen more makers, small makers, getting into this industry than I've seen right now. Like in the past probably year, probably eighteen, twelve to eighteen months. So how do you stand out from uh from the crowd? And to me it's always going to be storytelling aspects. Um, why do I, you know, want to purchase from this brand or this person? Um, what are their goals? What are their, what are their bigger picture ideas of being in this? Are they just doing this as a hobby? And that's completely fine. And, you know, just as a, Hey, I'm, I'm learning to do this. You know, that's, that's one type of story or, Hey, I have this thought on that. I would like to try to execute that I'm not seeing being done out there. That's a different story mm-hmm. and all these different. And then some people will take it from just like a, like a just nuts and bolts, raw materials perspective. Hey, I'm going to find something different that no one else is doing and I'm going to do it this way. So, um, so that's like the first part of standing out is why would I be compelled to buy from brand A as opposed to brand B? And it's really just this, 
God, this is ridiculous to say, but it's just like a f- gut feeling and a vibe. <laughs> Do you pass the vibe check? I, I know I said that. Yeah, creates the vibe. But there is there's bad marketing, right? Yeah. Obviously, bad vibe. So and bad vibes. So like, I think I really think the storytelling aspect is so important. And I don't mean like describe to me the why you have this naming convention of your product. I mean, like, I want the story in the soul of the person that's making the thing. Like, why do they want to be in the stationary industry? Why do they believe in analog, right? Not that, hey, I'm naming, you know, here's my product lineup and I've decided to go through these names for this reason and because that's what marketing says I should do. Um, But that's hard to define in a black and white sense. So you get a feel you get a feel for it. Um, it's slow, right? The faster someone goes from the jump, the least likely I am to be excited by what they're doing. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, right? That's a that's kind of a tell in in what I what what they believe in, right? And I know these are all like I said, these are all just kind of like nebulous ideas for like the gut feel of it. But I think storytelling is important. Um, and then one thing that's not talked about uh, really well is like just the the basic business aspects of it, communication and uh, follow through and um, execution of the sales flow. Um, not everyone does a good job at that, right? Which those brands end up, you know, losing out in the end because you're adding friction into like a purchasing process. So not only am I looking for like a great story, I'm looking for it to be easy on my account. Right. And uh, not everyone can do that. Right. So I'm going to give like the most realistic, but unhelpful piece of advice when it comes to this. (laughs) You have to stand out. Mm -hmm. That's it. Like, I can't tell you how to do that. Neither of us can like, but you have to be able to stand out somehow. Like you've Mm got to set yourself apart somehow. And, also, this is the thing. You've got to be able to do it, but if you do it for the sake of it, it won't work. Right. Like, you have to be able to stand out from having come up with something that is legitimately different for a good reason. Right. And one of the comments that comes up um, just in the general sense of like the smaller makers is you, you can buy a rainbow swirl stick from anybody. So why do you choose the person that you do? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Because there's a lot of like just taking that one particular thing. There's a lot of materials makers and there's a lot of swirly, swirly pin makers and there's not a lot of different pin shapes. So a lot of people are making similar. So how do you stand out in that? And a lot of it is, I believe, like the 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 harder things such as storytelling and customer service. Right. What makes you keep going? What makes you gain the customer? and What keeps that customer coming back? Like, obviously, you know, a lot of people are friends, but company i'm about to mention they sponsor us from time to time but canalea right they mm-hmm. ostensibly they, they are like everybody else right there's like here is mm-hmm. a, a a stick with some swirly colors on it mm-hmm. but they have developed really good marketing around their products of tying it to a story that like each set of colors has a reason and you can choose one of those that you know I like this image. I like the beach, so I want the one that looks like the beach. I like mm-hmm. volcanoes, so I want the one that looks like a volcano. Right, like that. Mm-hmm. They they were able to do something pretty cool there in, in tying it to 
locations, ideas, that kind of stuff. And so they were, that was, I think, very good marketing. And when they did that, mm. I didn't know of anybody else that was doing that. It was more just like, hey, look at this cool blue one that I made. You know mm. what I mean? So Yeah, and the other thing, I, was, I wasn't thinking about them at all in this commentary, but the one thing that they fit in the thing that I said um, that I think is a pro is they go slow right yeah. you're not we're not inundated no. with products um weekly right so there's a build up they bring like, out now a pen or two a year right right so lineup. that's like that's what i was talking about and like you know each company has to find their own way mm-hmm. in that but like that's management of the story and the brand and the product line but also each company has individual goals mm-hmm. like that like Canalea's in-game goal might be different than you know brand a's yep. goal on yep. what they're trying to accomplish so they can do things choose to do things a different way so yeah good point uh i think this is a related question from colors mm-hmm. and pens who says uh, following on from a discussion about small makers how do you think collectors in 50 years from now will see our modern pens when so many of them use the same three nib makers from small maker pens, not engraved pens. So, like, how would how will these be considered in the future? Like how we think of vintage pens, when all mm-hmm. that's really different is the design. Right. I. I. It's funny that this question came up because I was actually just thinking about this recently. In that, like, right now, if we as like us a stationary consumers and community think of vintage pens right we can look at what a company called parker did and figure out like the lineage of pens and product designs and learn all this information and basically like family tree like the sourcing of our pen 50 years from now is someone going to come across this collection of pens this pen addict guy had and be able to know what any of this stuff is because no, most of the companies will be unfindable <laughs> yeah right so, like realistically yeah. in 50 years from now if it's like a one or two person shop and they made some like some cool product like that is harder to find like the documentation yeah. about that is going to be harder to find like they're easy mm-hmm. to find online now but what will that be in 50 years Yep. Um, I also don't see that as a negative, right? No, like I, I'm going to enjoy what I have now. And I, as, as, as a non maker, like a maker might have a different philosophy on this than me, right? I'm a consumer and a user of products. So like, I'm, I'm more focused on what I'm using now and what I'm going to be using in the near term. Um, a maker may consider this and say, you know, I'm going to look at this a little bit differently. You know, I want to know where this pen's going to be in 50 years. Let me, you know, put in some effort to um, have this, you know, trackable, uh, discoverable information about these products. I don't know. You don't, you don't see that much uh, these days. You know, some of the, some of the, uh, you know, the big brands that have been around for a while, you can track them pretty well, you know, like a mm. Pelican or a Pilot, things like that. But like the small makers, no, nah, I, I, that's not going to happen probably. I also think it will be easier to get into vintage because you'll be able to more easily fix stuff, mm-hmm. right? You'll mm-hmm. find a design that you like, oh, look at this cool old pen. It looks like so awesome. Like, I love the look of this. But then yeah. the nib's broken. And you're like, ah, oh, how do yeah. I, you know, like, how do I fix this? Well, if <laughs> all pens are using <laughs> nibs from the yeah. same companies, there'll be way more of them around. So 
it may yeah, be even, even easier th- to deal with vintage pens then than yeah i didn't even think about that part of the question like uh i i don't know like i don't yeah i don't think it'll be um i don't think it'll be too much of an issue no like great. you're saying yeah mm-hmm. all right let's take a break and thank the very fine people over at pen chalet for their support of this show pen chalet sell authentic amazing rollerballs fountain pens ballpoints mechanical pencils and so much more they have all of your favorite brands like monteverde pelican lamy pilot namiki sailor Caveco. the list goes on and on and on and on and on it grows all the time pen chalet are an authorized dealer of these products and they want to make sure that you're getting the best service and the best prices. They have a 100% satisfaction guarantee. They do free shipping on orders of over $75 in the U.S. and great shipping rates internationally as well. But they also have great discounts. Every couple of weeks, you go to Pen Chalet and you will find new special deals along with new products. And it isn't just pens. It isn't just pencils that they sell it's not just fountain pens it's not just rollerballs it's also the accessories you're going to want to carrying cases pen holders refills inks converters and so much more take yourself over to penchalet.com p-e-n-c-h-a-l-e-t.com right now and click the podcast link at the top of the website enter the password pen addict for this week's special offers and to get the code that you need to save 10 percent on anything at any time at pen chalet so I got stuck down in the weeds at the at the bottom of the list today, but back up at the top, the Kakamori pigment inks. If you are into inks, into into ink testing, and you have the right accessories and right tools, as I, I'm meaning like glass dip nib pens, folded nibs, Kakamori dip nibs, um, these pigment inks are fun to use, and you know they're not really necessarily fountain pen friendly. I think these might you can use in in fountain pens but i would use them more from an artistic perspective but this is a really really good ink from a good company and at a at a good price one of the pens i've had on my list that i don't think i'll ever buy but i always consider it has popped up on the pen chalet uh deals page and it's the lamy dialogue cc so the dialogue was their twist retractable pen and i've owned one owned one for years and it's a good pen technically. It was just too wide, too big for me. The CC narrowed it down, I think, a little bit um, and simplified the design. Um, and it's kind of cool. Like, I, I'm I'm not willing to rethink it yet and put it back on the shopping list, but you don't often get a sale on this pen. Um, and I know a lot of people are interested in the CC. And, uh, yeah, that that's pretty good. And then uh, and then they have up. So one brand I haven't used is the Penlux before but they have some cool designs um that are on the sale page here on pen chalet so it might be something might be a perfect opportunity for me to pick one up for review so i'm checking on that and then what i got stuck on stuck on on the bottom there was some uh visconti's ron stuck here in the bottom like i'm not in the market to for visconti right now but uh there's some really good deals the um oh where'd it go i just passed it up uh the uh kaleido the orange one is uh, a really really good price right now the uh fire opal model is uh is has caught my eye and got me very distracted while uh you were reading the ad there so yeah there you go lots of good stuff on there and i want to thank pen chalet for their like 10 years of sponsoring the show too amazing thank you ron appreciate you Thank you. P-E-N-C-H-A-L-E-T dot com. Go there right now. Hit the password link at the top of the website. Use the password PenAddict and you can help support Pen Chalet and they help support this show too. Our thanks to Pen Chalet for the continued support of the Pen Addict. 
All right, next question. Keep on going. Yeah. Sure, it comes from Jessica, who says, with wild inflation, increasing prices of materials like gold, etc., the cost of entry to the hobby is rising, and many newcomers will not have as easy access to higher-end pens than we have before. For example, seven or eight years ago, a 14-karat gold Pro Gear Slim was less than $150 brand new. Nowadays, it's impossible. Even acrylic steel nib pens are often $200. What are your thoughts on making this hobby more accessible to everyone? What are some innovations that you really hope to see happen in the stationery industry as a whole? Not just fountain pens, but paper, ink, standard pens, accessories, etc. Can I just start this by making, just like saying a thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. if we're assuming that part of the reason the prices have increased is because of materials going up in price, there is nothing that can be done to make it more accessible. Like, you yeah, can't yeah, yeah. you can't find a cheaper gold. Like if gold yeah. is the bottleneck, like that's it, right? Like the yeah. way it's accessible is there's just more prices at lower levels, which there already is anyway. But yeah. if like what you're looking for is oh, we want to go back to the days when gold pen gold uh, nibs were cheaper, that time is probably gone. Like that, yeah. unfortunately, so the solution. That's just the so the solution is find new materials, right? Which yeah. that's pretty tough in in a in an industry that's like from a nib perspective is pretty resistant to change in the materials like that's kind of been solved right steel gold and then a few other outliers like titanium um so i don't know that there's anyone's working on like a different material type of um thing so i think just from the entry point and thinking about newcomers and what they're looking at when they get into the hobby I still think there are such good accessible options like in the non-gold nib category at price points that are still, uh, people are still willing to make a jump on a $5 pen or a $20 pen or a $50 pen to see what they like, see if they find a benefit in analog tools and then start the discovery process. And I think to Jessica's point, and this is something that I'm feeling, I think once you discover, okay, I'm in, like I'm in on stationary, like I, I like pens, I like fountain pens, I want to start discovering. I do think that when we saw, it's been years since we saw like our first price increases, I do think some of us in the more experienced end of the hobby will buy less more than we'll, we will see a lack of newcomers coming to the hobby, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to buy as many sailors because of the um, price changes that we're having. But I also don't think that's the space the newcomers are starting with and being turned off from if that makes sense, right? I feel, I still think we have the opportunities for newcomers to have something interesting and compelling and customizable with, you know, a Twisby Eco and a stub nib and a bottle of ink um, for, you know, less than $50. Mm-hmm. And then I think a lot of people are stopping there. This goes back to Damien's question earlier about, um, 
you know, the hobby boom um, that we saw like in COVID, there were so many people discovering pins at that time. And a lot of people have found what they wanted just from that entry level spot. Yeah. Right. Those are the stories I get. And like, that's okay. Like that's still people like using the stuff and talking about the stuff, but they may not have gone into like the pen addict podcast realm Mm -hmm. (laughs) where we're talking about the, 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 like the tier, the several tiers up from, from where they started from. So I think the newcomers still have it. Okay. Um, I do think the, and I think we have a question uh, about this later about the, say like the sailor, just to not to call them out specifically, but just using them as a jumping off point for later. Um, the price points, like I used to buy several sailors a year and now like I might buy one, right. Just because the, the price is, is expensive. It's not always in the budget anymore. So um, innovation wise, I think that's actually a, a harder question. We talk about this frequently. <sighs> Man, I, I we're doing a pretty good job right now. Um, you know, the smaller makers are driving some of the innovation that might trickle up to the bigger makers. Um, yeah, I don't know that there's a specific thing that I could say. Um, I, I will always want to see more in the standard pens market, right? Mm-hmm. Alluding to an answer I gave earlier, there's little to no change. Just take the Pilot G2, for example. I They're very content being the number one selling gel ink pen on the market. So what reason do they have to change? But could they do more? I, I would like to see it. I, I don't know what specifically that would be but like it's time for an update on a lot of these standard pens that are on the store shelves. I think fountain pens, paper, ink, accessories, there's a lot of good uh, change going on right now. Standard pens, they're a lot slower to move for reasons that I don't fully grasp. Marco asks, if you were a consultant to a fountain pen manufacturer, what advice would you give them regarding their product mix and designs, assuming they want to grow in the future? How would your advice differ depending on key markets worldwide? I haven't. I don't have an answer for this. I'll tell you that. I, I actually do have an answer for this. Of course you do. Uh, <laughs> it's not easy though, and and some companies actually do this now, but I think more companies could do this. For, and to the question, I'm thinking more about your bigger established companies. See so your your, your Lamis, your sailors. I'm not talking about like a necessarily like a small maker like a franklin christoph or an edison but i think these bigger makers and like if i was going into a business that's established say like a hundred year old fountain pen business that wants to ensure their next hundred years are good and stable and i'm the consultant for that job Mm -hmm. i really am impressed by other companies that have a full product funnel from the beginner item all the way to the premium item. And not a lot of companies do that well. Pilot is such a beloved company because they get them young, they get them inexpensive, they provide an elite product experience, and then people get used to the name brand, and when they're ready to move on or explore, they don't have to look any they don't have to look outside the brand to find the next step and then they're happy with that next step and then they want more and then there's a next step and there's a very clear path that pilot has 
in their product lineup all the way from like the most basic Kakunos or even they have some even more expensive, uh, less expensive pens than that all the way up into like the Namiki, you know, tens of thousands of dollars pens. And not that everyone's going to take like the full path, but they have it covered. Like there's this opportunity there. And I think a lot of companies don't. I think Sailor has a huge failing on the low end product. They do great on the gold nibs and up products. I think they have a very poor entry level lineup. I think Platinum and Pilot have far, far, far superior entry-level products than sailor so that's what i would see if like we need to we need to start the sailor hire me, hire me campaign as opposed to the lami hire me campaign because at lami that's something that they do reasonably well i think there's a couple of smaller changes i would think about with lami but like sailor's actually one that i am most concerns not the right word because they're a behemoth of a company there i don't they're not going anywhere I think they're do some innovation in their lower end product lineup mm-hmm. that we're not seeing right now. So that's what I see like this full product, like, like funnel from the beginning to the end. If someone wants to jump in in the beginning and start a discovery process, are you providing a great experience for that? Some companies do and some companies don't. So that's, if I was consulting, that's where I'm, that's what I'm looking at, right? And then on the lower end, why the low end is important to me is because that's where companies can experiment and see what succeeds and what fails. Yeah. And then they can take those successes and matriculate them up the product line, right? Like, oh, we tried this one thing. It went really well. How would this work for the rest of our product line? So it's twofold. It's, it's the internal processes of learning, testing, innovating, taking them to market, seeing what people like. Not only do the customers get something cool to try out and maybe they fall in love with your brand, you now have, you know, your your lab work is is done and you can you can take the results and put them throughout the rest of the, the product line. So that's what I'd be looking at if I was like consulting with with yeah. a um, with a brand and on how to set set them up for the next 100 years. Something that's really changed my opinion on on like entry level and stuff like that in the last few years is the um, Omega Swatch Moon Swatch Mm -hmm. where it's essentially a watch that looks like an Omega which are Mm -hmm. thousands of dollar watches made by Swatch and they've got like a whole idea around it and they sell for a couple of hundred dollars and I feel like initially I was like isn't this just going to dilute the Omega brand right like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because you're making these watches that look like Omegas, but they are a tenth of the value. And it's created like a real, like people will really dig these watches and, and like, and it hasn't affected, I don't, I don't think it's in the, my mind anyway, affected Omega. I think it's created more hype around them. And so I think yeah. now people get into these because they're like, oh, it's like a $250 watch that looks really cool. And then they use, that is like they're onboarding to maybe one day getting a Speedmaster or a Railmaster, you know? So right. that's really changed my personal opinion of this kind of idea because I can see a scenario, right, where, and I still think this could happen, um, where you end up, if you want to be a high-end brand, but then you create a cheap product, you are diluting the brand 
Like that is that's a thing that can happen, right? Like mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. Sailor want to be known as making really high end products, but then they make more entry level products, then it changes it changes the company, right? And how people perceive it. And but I, I do think it can be done well. And, and like where you're not changing the perception of the brand from being a high end product, even though you offer more of a range of materials and goods. Yeah, so let me tell you a brand that actually does it well, just kind of starting higher and not really, and being okay with not having as much entry-level opportunity is Montegrappa. They pretty much start at like $200 and up for steel knit pens. And there might be something I'm missing that's a very low end, but like that, I don't even know it what it is to talk about it kind of tells you everything Mm -hmm. but they've leaned into exactly what they are and have said hey you know when you figure it out come over here we might have something for you like they but they've that's i think that's probably pretty rare that they don't have like this direct line Mm. you know from from entry level up to up to the chaos pen um but have proven to be very successful in what they do offer. So, right. yeah, it's it's interesting. There's obviously not one way to do everything, but you know, that's kind of the way I see it in the in in the broader sense of things. Uh, Kay Ortic wants to know what is the worst uh, stationary marketing that you've seen besides the scribble pen. It, it's the Visionaire without question. Visionaire is up there. I'm going to throw in a uh, special mention for the um, the Coffee Macchiato Retro 51. <laughs> I'm, I'm never going to let it go. I forgot about that. Uh, really bad. Um, I mean, a lot of Kickstarter stuff isn't great, but that's just yeah. kind of I probably shouldn't count Kickstarter. But yeah. yeah, when you literally don't know what you're selling and succeed yeah it, it, it will drive me crazy like I, that was the worst marketing well, i've ever seen i mean it was bad for us it obviously was it worked though right like that's right that's the bad that's like the even worse part of it is the marketing <laughs> Which was, was actually so, good so it was great marketing <laughs> yes it was great marketing we just didn't like it yeah <coughs> um but yeah there's been some Man. there's been some clangers over the years that's for sure yeah um yeah, that I don't know. That's the only one that kind of stuck in my head. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't get past just the, like how how terrible that was from from just a a knowledge and technical perspective. Yep. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Ten Kim asks, has being a content creator and having your income come from that uh does it take the fun out of the hobby for you? Is it more of a job or do you still find excitement and joy from it? Um it has not taken the fun out of it for me. There I don't want to pretend that there's not challenging days and maybe challenging months or challenging years. Uh, it is, I have so much fun doing this. I said it a thousand times. I can't not do this. If I wasn't doing this, I'd still be doing it. Yeah. Um, there is work. The work part of it is like hard sometimes. Like I had a really tough work day yesterday. Just, I have a big list of things I need to get done and I couldn't get them all done because I had other life things getting in the way and like, and that's fine. But I get really frustrated when I can't do my, the job portion of my job, but that never, that it doesn't really cross over to the fun I get out of like the stuff and the things and the talking about stuff and stationary as a whole. And, you know, give me, you know, washi tape and stickers and $1 pencils and 
you know, bank ballpoints and thousand dollar pens and, you know, crazy notebooks. And I'm just happy, happy all the time about this stuff. Like I, I have never lost my love for stationary and not even close. Like it's, it's never even been a question. Um, it does like the, the work part of it, since it is my job, that's always going to be a challenge, right? To a degree. So that's just something that's a, that's a constant work in progress as I'm sure a lot of y'all can relate to. The idea of do something you love and you'll never work a day in your life is categorically untrue. It is yeah, untrue. Right. It's a lie that people spread. It is terrible because it's not the yeah. case. Because if right. something is your job, it has job elements to it. It's not always the fun part. Like right. there there are things that you have to do and deal with, right? Like if you think about anything that you consider to be the best job in the world. Think about the inevitable bad parts, right? So let's think about people like, oh, being uh, an actor, right? Being in a movie. Mm. What about if your movie fails, like it bombs, it's bad? You know, I think that feels like work. I mean, that doesn't feel like mm-hmm. a dream when you're going through <laughs> that, right? Like any of these things, right? Like we get, we are, we are in the position where we get to make a living from the things that we love. And as you said, I couldn't imagine doing anything else but it's not like this doesn't feel like a job and it does mm-hmm. change your relationship to it. And the reason it feels like a job is because it is my job. And so mm-hmm. it has jobby things. It has responsibilities. It has things that I need to do and take care of things, choices that I have to make that I maybe otherwise wouldn't decide to do in my life. You know, like all this kind of stuff, it's all in there, but mm-hmm. there is not a, another job in the world that I would rather do. Absolutely. Like without question. This is what I want to do. And so, right. it yes, it does change your relationship to it because sometimes there are things that you do or don't do, or even like for you, like products that you try that might frustrate you or annoy you that you otherwise wouldn't, you know, like yeah. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as it being a job, it's the best job that we could wish for, but it's still a job. Mm-hmm. And yep. anybody that tells you that's not true <laughs> is a liar, <laughs> in my opinion, or they are seriously deluded uh, in yep. some way. Um, Carol asks, after 599 episodes, um, Pen, Ink, Stationery, after 599 episodes of Pen, Ink, Stationery, with all honesty, what keeps you motivated to be inspired to discuss these writing instruments without ever finding you repeat yourselves or getting tired of the sameness and maintaining your excitement? What continues to get you at the microphone and discuss what's happening? And as a caveat, not just the latest product or color, I will start and just say it's you, Brad. Mm. For me. Interesting. I I wouldn't do this to anybody else. I, I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't care enough. Like I think it's yeah. I think listeners of the show understand that like my interest in like writing equipment has changed over the years. Like I don't mm-hmm. really buy things anymore. Now I'm really just mostly interested in the discussion around the, the things that the that businesses are doing. Right. Like that's right. now, cause I mean, I've always cared about that stuff anyway, but that is mostly what I am here for now is to, like to, to think about that, talk about that and debate that with you. And, and but like mm-hmm. you are the reason I do this. I I want to spend time with you. You're one of my best friends, and this is the easiest way to do that. So, <laughs> simple. <laughs> well, I could just continue that on and and, and suck up to you, but I, I, I'm going to suck up to our listeners, Mike, and that's who, mm-hmm. uh, that's what keeps me motivated to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the people in this hobby industry podcast blog everything that we do are 100% what keeps me going the curiosity that people have the interest that people show uh the care that people show not just me you uh that they show the others in this community that's what keeps me going and if i can provide those people some information every now and then when they need it uh i am super glad to do it and that's really what keeps me going right like you know like i can have all the products in the world but if i'm not satisfied if you know my friends that are listening aren't satisfied and aren't happy um so yeah that's that's really what keeps me going is uh, is the people and i guess yep. that includes you fine Mike, fine <laughs> uh ink explorer knows would you ever become a brand ambassador no i would if the right if it was the right partnership if it was my only job, I would do it. Mm. Like I, it's I have, harder for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big. You. Yeah, I'm a big editorial freedom guy. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> so I'm not. this, if if like if I left, like if everything ended and I went to work for Lamy, right? Sure, like sure. The, I could do that. That's not going to happen, right? That's we just joke about that. Um, I could not do that as like part of what I do mm-hmm. because there's um. Um, a, a certain freedom I afford myself to speak freely. Um, that um, yeah, that wouldn't that wouldn't behoove uh, brands to work with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I would do it if yeah. the I, if the opportunity was right. Yeah, I turn those things down all the time. Yeah. I turn I turn lots of things down it just because of that. Makes sense why you do. Makes sense yeah. why you do. It's 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 one of the easiest questions I can answer. It's I'm very clear in in this and with myself. Uh, you know what I say, Brad? Hmm. Ethics schmethics. That's what I say. <laughs> you know? Get hey, that bag. So, yeah, Mike can be bought. Uh yeah, I, can I can be bought. I can be bought to it. I can we can I can have a conversation. Brad, everybody's got a price. Don't even everyone's got right? a price. Everyone's got That's a why price. I said so I Ted left the WS, door. Ted DBLC was right. Everybody I left the door. I left the door open. I left the door open. <laughs> Uh, Sandra asks, what are your thoughts on the future of pen shows? In order to bring in more attendees, do they need to pivot to being more of a convention type setup with panels and workshops? Uh, the shows are all competing for the same vendors and sometimes the same attendees. How do they differentiate themselves? I think Sandra yeah, asked I, her own question in the question, right? I know. I always I always love this yeah. this question. This is something we talk about probably at least once a year as I go to shows. Um, I used to be really on the con bandwagon, right? Like, I think that's what we need as a pin show experience and really onto that. And I've not that I'm like backing off of that completely, but I think what we have now is good. If we could add more experience stuff with what we have without turning into a con. And I kind of mean that, in a non-pen show related experiences location you know like is there something i can do for a day outside of the pen show right which is you know not what retailers or show runners (laughs) runners want to hear they want you in the building at all times but if i can go for three days and have one day to do had to be convenient for me to actually get me in those other two days of the show um, maybe that's what I'm looking for now and things change over time. Um, I think 
as much as I want the con model, I don't think that works for the retailers and you need the retail buy-in on something like that. That's a really, really tough sell. Well, I think I, experience the more I think about it over the years. is the important part, I do. like, mm-hmm. and, and I think it is having some workshops and some panels. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like retailers would understand that like that brings more people and that's the most important mm-hmm. thing. I don't yeah. think that you want to like just do that right like but there should be some of that so if you're going to be there for two or three days that you can't re- you cannot go to a pen show for more than one day and ha- keep having stuff to look at like yes you, you you will run out so having like social events or like things that can fill a couple of hours here or there like i think that that is mm-hmm. pretty key to making this a destination thing rather than just yep. a it's in my town thing um, and so uh, I, I do think that having some kind of experiential part of the of a pen show is is really important. If you want to build your show to be a one that people travel to, which you don't have to have, I don't. I actually don't think they well they can't all be that way, and they shouldn't. Right. Um, but maybe some of the bigger shows are the shows that have opportunity to do so. That's how you do it. But otherwise, I think it is it is actually good in a way for some shows to differentiate themselves as local shows and, mm-hmm. and what that means too. Yep, agree with all that. So more experiences and they can be within the shows. So yeah, good stuff. Sandev asks, why have the larger pen manufacturers seemingly given up on fundamental innovations? New nibs, feeds, and filling mechanism designs are mostly coming from small, often one-person outfits. Impressive though their ingenuity is, they don't have the capital to do repeated iterations of design or take advantage of of, uh, economies of scale. So excited for this question. I love this question. Um, Not that I have an answer, but this is something I've been thinking about for probably the better part of a year, if not two, in how does brand a continue and i'm, and I'm not ta- again like sandev saying not the small bakers i'm talking about like what we would consider like a, a a pen business um you know your you know all your italian brands you know japanese brands all the all the bigger brands the larger companies that we think of not like the small individual makers how do they keep making the same model uh, every year and then just switching up the colors, right? Like, you know, like a sailor, sailor aspect or like a, a Leonardo aspect. So like someone like Leonardo has done a good job where they started with some standards, um, like two or three shapes, lots of colorful acrylics. Then through the years, they modified the shapes. They added in piston fillers. They added in gold nib options. They changed the sizes. Sizes are big. They always seem to kind of like make small improvements to make their pins better. And then some other companies will just take, and this is not a knock on them, they'll just take their core model and introduce new colors throughout the year. Like, that's fine, too. Uh, So this is where I have to keep in mind that there's always new people coming into the hobby, right? Like, this is one thing you can't ever forget, no matter what I want brand A to do. Brand A knows better than me in general, right? They understand their business. They understand the customer acquisition. They understand that they got to keep their existing customers happy too. So I think the innovation in the technical format 
has become really cost prohibitive for a lot of these companies unless they're the biggest. And even then mm -hmm. they don't want to spend on that amount of the level of research. I think we forget sometimes how small even the biggest companies are. Um, I forget the number when uh, Pelican got sold earlier this year, Joshua Danley at the Pelican's Perch had the fine writing um, segment of the company, oh, yeah. whatever millions of dollars it was, was way, a way smaller millions of dollars than I thought it would be. Uh, kind of in an astonishing sense. And it makes you think that like we, I don't want to say we're lucky to get what we get, but I do understand the innovation limits for what is like the most niche of writing uh, segments that these businesses have. Right. So it, it's a tough question. I love this question. I think about it a lot. What keeps me interested in, you know, the main brands, new color of the new pin every year. And to be honest, sometimes I'm not interested and you know what? That's okay. Right. That's like totally Okay. You know, things ebb and flow throughout the years as we go. And, you know, you take a break from them. And then maybe they come back later with some design tweak, some change, and it gets you interested again. And, like, that's okay. I don't need every comfort, every company to fulfill every need every month of the year for me, right? <laughs> like, it's okay if I don't buy a sailor this year or next year. Mm -hmm. You know, eventually there might be something I like later. It's okay if, you know, like, I found you know something something else that i like from a different brand and don't buy from this one brand this year like that's okay like so i i don't have a a great question other than the like the fundamental innovations i don't want to say everything's solved i don't believe that's the case i do believe it is very cost prohibitive and that we oftentimes think these companies are bigger and more flush with cash to burn on experiments than they really are I'm not sure I have much of a thought around this. I, yeah. I feel it's a tough like question. to me the question itself is inherently making a decision um about the fact that there's no innovation inside of large companies and I'm not sure that that's I'm just not sure that's completely accurate. Yeah, right. I think it I just I do think it's smaller. Like the but Leonardo innov but is true a good innovation example. takes a long time. Yes. But it's smaller. Hey, never iterative. forget about the Curidas, you know what I'm saying? It's always yeah. out there. Like, like, that's why I love the Curidos, right? Maybe not technically, but the concept of it, that they actually did that was massive. Mm -hmm. And look at them now. It probably did not work, right? Yeah, and, and I think that's part of it. Like, mm -hmm. there, is, there is a limit for innovation in fountain pens, right? Like, there is <laughs> a limit. Yeah. But, it's, mm -hmm. but, like, if you look at pens in general, we have the friction, Right, right. I went for a meeting uh, with my printer today and explained to them that thing. <laughs> that was very funny. That person, by the way, Brad, they they mm -hmm. I told them and they mm -hmm. it, they it, they they sent me more vid, like images of still doing it. I'm like, but I don't know what's going on with you. <laughs> and, and, but at this point, I'm I'm like, it's I'm kind of just like, if you want a refund, let me know. We can sort it out, but. <laughs> I don't design Who knows? with every pen in mind and I've I've not gotten anyone else to reproduce this issue of erasing the ink but yeah I mean like there That's are fine. innovations they're maybe not fast big sweeping like but they're mm -hmm. there uh, Barry Rose asks with the close of Bromfeld uh, Applebaum 
in mm-hmm. Boston and the boom of online retailers is the future of brick and mortar pen life in pen shows, not pen shops? Yeesh. That's a good question. Um, uh, retail's hard. Physical retail's hard. Like, physical retail hard. is brutal. Um, to have the wherewithal, the nerve, and the right blood pressure medications to do that is a rare combination. Um, there are newer companies that have seemingly found something mm-hmm. in their brick and mortar locations. I'm looking at Yoseka, you know, stationary. But then you just have to look across town to CW Pencil Enterprises that was a beloved company and found that the business is just not sustainable, right? It's not easy. So is the future pin shows, not pin shops? I don't want to say it because I don't want to believe it. Mm. <laughs> because like I when I went to Atlas Stationers, I learned, and I've, I've known this every pin shop that I've visit, visited, how valuable those shops are to the communities that they reside in. Yep. And not just to the pen people that are there, right? Um, and this goes for every shop I visited, you know, Drum Ghouls, Van S, and on and on and on. Wonder Pens, I'm sure I'm leaving many out. That they get as much out of being in those communities and those communities get as much about having those stores there as the stationary lovers get from being able to walk down the street to the to the shop or travel across town to the shop or things like that. So it's hard. I don't know what the future is. No one can predict that, especially in the brick and mortar retail space. Um, it's got to be one of the toughest spaces, but it can be done. It will not be easy. Um, and I guess this is the big catch and probably to Barry Rose's point. Um, all of these stores have a thriving online business as well. Yep. Every one of them. So I don't know. Maybe that that uh, goes more to the to the point of the question is is the future shows not shops or online? I don't know. I don't know. I just think they're such a valuable asset to the community um, that I would hate to see. I I am always excited to support brick and mortar because it's such a unique and necessary um, aspect for a lot of these communities and a lot of these spaces. So I'm, uh, I would hate to see, I always hate to see them close and go, but I, I get it because it is really freaking hard, really freaking hard to manage. All right. Last question, Mike. Last I think question. I had the most trouble with this one out of all the questions. <laughs> What's the Stanley Tumblr of the stationary world? <laughs> what useful tool or item for pen people do you think could become a craze? So this is from my friend Corolla. Um, I have been, I wrote all kinds of notes for all kinds of these questions and I have yet to write anything down for this one. Do you have any suggestions? No, I mean, it's it's some kind of like, uh, you know what? Oh. I actually do know what it is. I, I, I just came up with an idea too. So what do you have? Shimmerinks. Okay. I think it, so here's the thing. Friend of the show, mm-hmm. Carrie, our, our chief mm-hmm. sales officer, she bought a first fountain pen. Mm-hmm. She bought a Kaveco, as you mm-hmm. do. 
and mm-hmm. she was asking me about shimmer rinks, and I was like, <laughs> I said, I said, right like, from the jump, it, ah, you know, <laughs> I don't know, like you know, I was just like, she asked, basically had a couple. She was interested in shimmer inks, but then also like a, a just like a just a nice a, just a nice purple ink, and I was like, mm-hmm. I think you should get that one. I was like, because as to mm-hmm. start out with, keep it simple for yourself, maybe mm-hmm. advance there later on. That I'm gonna go with. Not just shimmery inks, like I don't mean. I mean, like with particles in, right? Like glittery yeah, yeah. inks. That that's what I think yeah. is is going yeah. on there. Yeah, I don't know. I think those are pretty well established, and and I don't know that there's more of a craze than there's already been. Um, I don't know. I felt like I was going to get off a rocket boat joke here before the episode ended. And I don't know. This seemed like a good spot, maybe. Um, but I'm trying to think of something like more particular. God, I'm gonna really, I'm gonna have to think about this. Um, yeah, like I tried, I tried. Well, well, I might have to workshop this one. I'll, I'll come back to you. Like, what's the Stanley Tumblr of the stationary world? As a, as the the father of a 17 year old daughter, I'm very vested. In oh, the, really? In the Stanley Tumblr world. Yeah, I think that we have four in the house. Which, no, oh my god, yeah. that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, um, but what would the stationary comparison be? I don't know. I have to think about that. Oh, you know what it could be. <laughs> Go on. I'm, I'm, tell, I'm telling on myself here, uh, and someone's probably yelled this at their uh, plotter. <laughs> the plotters definitely had like a this oh, little bit of hype, hype that's thing. Good. And, yeah, and uh, and you know every little sh- every show they have they they do a good job of like doing the promotions show and the accessories right because that's yeah, a big thing yeah, with yeah, the Stanleys. Yeah. See, you know I'm what? Just told also, on myself here. Brad. I'm going to uh-huh. say it, all right? I'm just going to say it. Now, everyone get off my back, all right? I'm going to say it. Mm-hmm. Hobonichi. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Definitely. I love them. Great, mm-hmm. but similar, right? Like, big yeah. hype, and there's a bunch of stuff that goes yeah. with the thing, and yeah. most people buy it, and they, mm-hmm. I would expect most people that buy a Hobonichi end up not using it <laughs> by yeah. the end of the year. Uh, so, maybe, you know, maybe we yeah. can put bullet journaling in here too. Yeah. It's like one part useful, one part status, right? Yeah. <laughs> like that's the that's the thing with like the Stanley Tumblr. Like, okay, technically, this is a heck of a good product, right? Mm-hmm. But then now there's also like a status applied to it, uh, you know, just in the craze part of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I told on myself on this one. <laughs> great show, Mike. What a great Mike. way Happy to end. 600. <laughs> <laughs> Getting ourselves in some trouble. What a great way to end. Love it. Uh, everybody, thank you so much for listening to episode 600 of The Pen Addict. And for wherever it is you joined us on this journey, uh, we appreciate you. There is no show without you. Like, we need to be here, but if we're not here, if we're here and you're not listening, there's no show. Mm. There's no point. It's Mm. just me and Brad having a conversation at that point, which, while fun, wouldn't really make sense to record. So thank you so much for your continued support of what we do. Um, in all of the forms in which you support us, uh, which is by listening to this show, supporting our sponsors, buying our products, listening to our other shows, watching our Twitch streams, reading blogs, all that kind of stuff. Like, mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your continued support. It is truly incredible to be here 12 years later and to be still doing this thing. So you want to find Brad? In the meantime, go to the titular website, penaddict.com. You can also find Brad online. He is at penaddict and over at twitch.tv slash penaddict. I'm at imike, I-M-Y-K-E, and my products are at cortexbrand.com. Go to spokedesign.com for some wonderful pens 
and mechanical pencils. Thank you to Pen Chalet for their support of this week's episode. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, say goodbye, Brad. Goodbye, Brad.